called called to order the hearing of the Senate Veteran, uh, not Veterans Affairs, I'm in the wrong committee, Senate Foreign Relations <laughs> Committee. Welcome all our guests and our two people to testify. I'll make opening remarks and then I'll turn it to Senator Shaheen for her opening remarks. Today's hearing will review two treaties that will advance U.S. interests in agricultural and financial sectors. The International Treaty on Plant Genetics and the Hague Convention on the Law Applicable to Certain Rights in Respect to the Securities Held with an Intermediary. Our first treaty is the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources. The Plant Genetic Treaty was voted out of this committee by a voice vote in December 2010. Unfortunately, the Senate did not take up the treaty before the end of the 2010th Congress. As our witnesses will explain in their testimony, our food security and the future of the United States agriculture depends upon access to the plant germplasm that will be made available through terms of this treaty. The United States is the global leader in agriculture, and I might add parenthetically, so is my state of Georgia, so I have a personal, personal parochial interest in this as well. In fact, the multilateral germplasm system established under the treaty are based on our own plant, national plant germplasm system, which has been an operation for years. Without full participation under the treaty, our farmers and researchers are placed in a competitive disadvantage. Without it, they have to engage in costly, time-consuming bilateral negotiations to access materials that would fully be fully available under the treaty. This treaty entered into force in 2004 and has 139 parties. We look forward to hearing from our witness today on how ratification of this treaty will help our national interest. The second treaty we will consider is the Hague Convention. In this treaty, we will address significant and complex and conflicting conflict of laws and issues in global financial markets. Financial markets have evolved over the past couple of decades. The Hague Convention represents the other step forward in the evolution of securities law and financial markets. The capital markets are now global. The presence of new challenges, numerous parties trading securities across national borders. Under the indirect system, intermediaries in the United States manage accounts owned by people all over the world. Although the financial transactions managed in the intermediaries are global, the owners live in different countries from where the laws applicable to those accounts may vary dramatically from one country to the next. Determining which laws are applicable and which courts apply brings new challenges with numerous parties trading securities across national borders. Legal issues that once we would be resolved under U.S. law now face complex issues regarding choice of laws and choice of forum. By providing a set of fall, fallback rules for reconciliation conflicts of the law, the Hague Convention represents another step forward in the evolution of securities law and financial markets. The Hague Convention would improve upon the current framework of providing a simpler method of resolving these conflicts. If ratified, this convention would reduce risk in global financial markets and reduce cost. The United States has a natural advantage under the Hague Convention. The convention is based on U.S. legal principles and under U.S. Uniform Commercial Code. I look forward to discussing this today and look forward to hearing from our witnesses. I'll now introduce the ranking member, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and um, thank you for chairing this hearing. I, I'm glad we're having this hearing today because consideration of treaties is one of the critical duties the Constitution assigns to the Senate, and I believe that we need to take that duty seriously. I'm gonna not repeat what Senator Isaacson has said about the treaties that we're going to be considering this morning, um, but just wanna make a few points. First, as Senator Isaacson said, the treaty has been ratified. The 
global access to plant genetic resources. Um, international Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture has been ratified by 139 countries. And my understanding is that ratification will require no changes in U.S. law. Um, on the Hague Securities Convention, I understand the convention's principles are based on our own uniform commercial code, which means they're entirely compatible with those already in effect across the United States, and they won't require any implementing legislation. The Uniform Law Commission, the body instrumental in drafting the code, has registered its strong support for ratification of the convention, as have all of the relevant stakeholder, stakeholders, including banks, stockbrokers, um, investment firms, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So I um, will submit my full statement for the record, Mr. Chairman, and apologize in advance that I have to leave early to go to a markup in the Appropriations Committee. Without objection, your remarks will be made permanent part of the record, and without objection, I will note that we're going to all be out of here pretty fast because we have <laughs> votes coming up pretty soon, so I don't want our two witnesses to think we're being rude or unprofessional, but we do have to vote, I think, at 11 o'clock, if I'm not mistaken. Is that not right? So we'll go right to our testimony. I want to first, without objection, enter into the record various letters that have been submitted by agricultural interest and financial interest around the country in support of the United States' participation in both of the treaties we'll discuss today. Without objection, they'll become a part of the record. Our first witness is the Honorable Judith Garber, Ger Garber Acting Sec Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Oceans, International, Environmental, and Scientific Affairs at the Department of State. We welcome you, and you'll be the first to testify. Our second witness today is Mr. John Kim, Assistant Legal Advisor for Private International Law at the Department of State. Ms. Garber, you're recognized for up to five minutes. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Shaheen, thank you for the opportunity to testify today in support of the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. With your permission, I have a longer statement that I would like to submit for the record. Without objection. The American people depend on U.S. agriculture, which in turn depends on stable, high yields of U.S. crops, which in turn depend on the continual development of new crop varieties. The crops we grow are under constant threat from diseases and pests, droughts, and floods. Our food security and the future of U.S. agriculture will depend on our ability to breed resilient new crops that require less water, less fertilizer, and less energy to grow, and still reliably produce high-quality yields. To develop these new crop varieties, breeders and researchers require access to a broad spectrum of plant germplasm. Plant germplasm includes the seeds, bulbs, roots, and other propagating raw materials from which plants can be reproduced. These materials for plant breeding contain key traits, such as immunity to virulent pests and diseases or tolerance for, for drought. Because plant genetic diversity is spread across the globe, U.S. access to germplasm from other countries is critical to develop the crops we need. This means facilitating guaranteed access to what is termed plant genetic resources is a very high priority for the United States and the international community. This is the reason the treaty was established. This treaty creates a stable legal framework for international plant germplasm exchanges. It benefits both research and commercial interests in the United States. The treaty also promotes U.S. and global food security through the conservation and sustainable use of plant genetic resources. The treaty's centerpiece is the establishment of a multilateral system. Its purpose is to facilitate access 
by public and private entities to, and benefit sharing regarding, certain plant genetic resources to be used for research, breeding, and training for food and agriculture. Currently, 64 food, feed, and grazing crops are listed in the treaty. Access is granted through a standard material transfer agreement, essentially a contract that defines the terms of access and benefit sharing. As a global leader in agricultural production, research, and breeding, the United States was intensively involved in negotiating the treaty and the standard material transfer agreement. President George W. Bush signed the treaty in 2002, and as you noted, Mr. Chairman, it entered into force in 2004 and now has 139 parties. Throughout the treaty's negotiating process, the United States was firmly committed to creating a system that promotes U.S. and global food security, protects U.S. access to genetic resources held outside our borders, and supports research and breeding in both the public and private sectors. The U.S. also sought to protect the ability of international agricultural research centers, the institutions largely responsible for the Green Revolution, which saved hundreds of millions of lives, to continue to breed crops that are the foundation for global food security. We were successful in achieving these objectives. U.S. ratification of the treaty enjoys strong support among stakeholders, such as the American Seed Trade Association, the American Farm Bureau Federation, the Association of Land-Grant Universities, and the National Farmers Union. Mr. Chairman, the treaty is consistent with existing U.S. practice and can be implemented under existing U.S. authorities. The United States is already in compliance with key provisions of the treaty. The Agricultural Research Service would play a major role in domestic treaty implementation. Ratification would not entail major policy or technical changes. For more than 60 years, the U.S. National Plant Germplasm System has distributed samples to plant breeders and researchers worldwide and without restriction. One notable example of collaboration is the Crop Gene Bank in Griffin. The Gene Bank of the Agricultural Research Service and the University of Georgia is working to collect, conserve, and distribute plant genetic resources for sorghum, peanut, vegetables, cowpeas, and other crops, and crop wild relatives. Ratification of the treaty would not only underscore our continued leadership in agricultural research, breeding, and markets, it would also help U.S. farmers and researchers sustain and improve their crops and promote food security for future generations. Finally, it would enable the United States to effectively guide the trajectory of the treaty and its material transfer agreement as they evolve to meet future challenges and changing conditions. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. I look, would be happy to answer any questions you may have. Chairman Isaacson, ranked member Shaheen, members of the committee, I appreciate this opportunity to testify today in support Mr. Kim, could you just pull your mic a little closer to your mouth so we can hear a little better? Okay. Thank you. Excuse me. Uh, I'll start again. Chairman Isaacson, Ranking Member Shaheen, members of the committee, I appreciate this opportunity to testify today in support of the Hague Convention on the law applicable to certain rights and respective securities held with an intermediary. The convention was adopted by the Hague Conference on Private International Law on July 5th, 2006 and was signed by the United States and Switzerland that same day. Switzerland and Mauritius have ratified the convention. The convention will enter into force after the deposit of the third instrument of ratification. Many countries are looking to the United States, upon whose law the convention largely was based, to become a party before they take action. 
In brief, the rules in the convention provide a narrow technical fix to a serious problem in cross-border securities markets that has already been fixed domestically through adoption by all U.S. states of Articles 8 and 9 of the Uniform Commercial Code. The convention, if widely adopted, would basically extend current U.S. law and practice to the global financial markets. In particular, the rules in the convention solve the current quandary of determining which country's law applies to certain aspects of a cross-border transaction in which the issuer, the clearing corporation, the security owner's bank or broker, and the owner may be located in different countries. First, I'd like to provide some brief background explaining the nature of the problem that the convention was designed to address. Over the years, financial markets have moved from a system of direct holding of security certificates or recordings on a share registry to a system of securities, clearance, settlement, and ownership where the ownership information is held electronically as a book entry. This so-called indirect system consists of one or more tiers of intermediaries between the issuer and the owner. These so-called intermediated securities are maintained through clearing corporations for the accounts of banks and brokers, which in turn maintain accounts for their customers. In the movement towards book entry systems, it has become increasingly difficult for financial market participants to determine which country's law would apply to transactions involving securities held through these systems that involve different countries. It is crucial that market participants be able to identify the relevant law easily and with certainty for a variety of purposes, including, among many others, ensuring the perfection of interest in the intermediated securities. This problem affects U.S. banks and financial institutions every day and increases legal uncertainty and raises costs. The Uniform Law Commission and the American Law Institute addressed this problem within the United States by revising the UCC in 1994. The rules in the convention are based on the rules contained in UCC Articles 8 and 9. Second, I would like to turn to the solution to this problem provided by the convention. The convention's focus is important but narrow. It deals with intermediated securities, but not securities directly held by the investor from the issuer. The convention does not prescribe substantive law. Rather, it simply selects a governing law for certain issues related to an intermediated securities transaction, thereby providing legal certainty on issues. These issues include the legal rights and obligations of the intermediary and the resolution of priority conflicts among the buyer, the secured party, and a judgment lien creditor if there are conflicting claims to the securities. The primary rule of the convention for determining the applicable law is to look to the law of the jurisdiction whose law governs the account agreement between the customer and the intermediary. Virtually all book entry systems are covered by an account agreement, and the very large majority of those agreements specify a governing law. Third, the convention is consistent with and was largely based on U.S. law. The convention generally follows the approach to choice of law for the indirect holding system already contained in Article 8 of the UCC. In particular, UCC Article 8 permits the intermediary and the customer to, to determine the law that governs the transaction by express agreement. My last and perhaps import, most important point is that we expect that there will be many benefits of U.S. ratification of the convention. The convention would contribute to the practical need in the large and growing global financial markets for greater legal certainty as to the laws applicable to interests in securities held through indirect holding systems. It would reduce the cost of cross-border securities transactions for securities investors, market actors, and custodians. U.S. businesses and individuals would benefit in particular because the convention sets forth modern rules which already govern their domestic transactions and extend those rules more globally 
thereby reducing costs and enhancing certainty. As the convention was largely based on US law and given this country's significant role in cross-border transactions, other countries are looking to the leadership of the United States. If the United States becomes a party, we expect that many other countries, including Canada, as well as countries in Asia, South America, and Africa, will be encouraged to join the convention and adopt the same rules on choice of law. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you very much, Mr. King, and we'll have an opening round of five-minute questions, and I'll start on that. Ms. Garber, your recognition of the University of Georgia was duly noted. I want to tell you how much I appreciate that. And they do have a great agricultural extension service throughout the state and a great research center in Griffin, which you acknowledged in your remarks, and I appreciate it. Which brings me, actually, to the key question that I've been asking, given the genetic modification, genetically modified organisms issue, between used to be in Asia, but now it seems like the Europeans are using it as well. Will our participation in this treaty help us in having GMOs recognized as being safe and secure as a component part of our agricultural products, or does it have anything to do with that? Thank you for that question, Senator. This treaty deals with the particular product or plant genetic, or the plant material, the building blocks of plants, um, but it doesn't deal with the particular processes or techniques that were used to create any particular seed or bulb or propagating material. So it is completely neutral on the question of genetically modified organisms. It just deals with access on the particular seeds or tubers or bulbs or plant propagating material. Well, carrying that same thought a little bit further, in terms of trade agreements, we have TPP that's pending in the United States Senate, and hopefully TTIP will be pending at some time in the next Congress in terms of Europe and Scandinavia. Will it be of any help to us? And one of our problems in trade around the world is people will use standards in their country for health and safety and security and or financial standards, Mr. Kim, in their country to be a reason why they don't want to have free and fair and open trade with the United States. Will this help us, either one of those treaties, by getting into them, have a better, more level playing field? This treaty is distinct from that, but what this treaty does do is it creates a level playing field in terms of guaranteed access for our public and private plant breeders, as well as our agricultural researchers. Mr. Kim, like most Americans who are not attorneys uh, and not bankers or financial services personnel, I've always been worried about losing a stock certificate, but I've even been more worried about an electronic recording of stock ownership that I never can touch, feel, and put in a safety deposit box. Is our participation in this financial treaty with The Hague, will that help in secure, being, assuring people that their ownership is secure and safe in the, fact, in the effect of, event of a cyber attack or some other electronic problem? Um, Senator, uh, this treaty will certainly enhance uh, uh, the f global financial markets by introducing legal certainty uh, as to the choice of law uh, in a situation where there currently is no legal certainty. Uh, because when there's many different countries involved, people don't know which law to apply, and they uh, often try to comply with many different laws. So it would reduce legal and systemic risk and, and um, reduce costs, and I think that would be uh, good for U.S. investors as well as U.S. banks and brokers, and it will enhance the integrity of the, of the indirect holding system through which much of our tra uh, uh, securities trade Proceeds. 
Well, to, to that point, and I want to make sure I'm right on this, the, the, the laws governing financial transactions in the residence of the owner of the account under this treaty will be the laws that govern the handling of the financial services of that account. Is that correct? In other words, if I have a, if I have a financial manager in the United States of America and I'm a resident of the United States of America and there's a question about an account transfer, this would determine that this would guarantee the determination that U.S. law prevailed. Is that right? In practical reality, yes, because most, almost all U.S. banks or brokers uh, and, their, and U.S. residents would choose U.S. law to govern uh, uh, their account agreements. Thank you very much, Mr. Kim. Thank you very much, Ms. Garber. Ms. Shaheen. Thank you. Ms. Garber, can you talk about how and whether the treaty would address, help address the challenges of global food insecurity? Thank you for that question, Senator. This treaty would absolutely help address uh, the challenge of global food security. So many regions of the world that suffer from global food insecurity, such as in Africa, South Asia, or the Caribbean, suffer from low agricultural productivity. What this treaty does is it provides guaranteed access for those that are do, trying to produce new plant varieties that will be stronger and more resistant to part of the undercurrent reasons on why we have low agricultural food pr uh, productivity or, or for example, uh, pests and diseases that may affect certain crops. So by providing this system of access, it enhances not only the food security of the United States, but food security globally. Thank you. And Mr. Kim, you pointed out that the convention was signed in July of 2006, which is almost a decade ago, um, that there are only two countries that have actually ratified it to date. So why is it taking so long? Thank you, Senator, for the question. Uh, other countries are looking to the, uh, to the United States for leadership on this convention, as this convention was based on our lo law and rules. And in view of the significant role that the United States plays in global markets, U.S. ratification of this convention would lead to the entry into force of the convention, and we believe that would create a lot of momentum for, uh, to encourage other countries um, to, jo uh, to join the treaty. And I've had conversations with the Canadians, we've heard voices from Japan and Korea, that they're very interested in what the United States does with the Hague Securities Convention. And, and I understand that, that makes sense to me, but, but why has it taken so long for the treaty to come before the Senate? Well, the treaty transmittal package was submitted by President Obama in May 2012. <laughs> uh, and then... Um, so we have been slow to take it up? Well, uh, it's been before the committee, certainly. But I, I think, I'm sure there have been many other priorities and it's taken some time. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, given that we heard that the stakeholders are seem to all be supportive. Has there been objections coming? Have there been objections coming from some areas that are not apparent that we need to better understand? Thank you, Senator. No, we are not aware of any opposition or objections posed to this convention. It has near universal support with uh, every, almost every industry trade association has written to the committee in support of this uh, US ratification of the convention as has the Uniform Law Commission, which promulgates the UCC. 
and they've all written in support of the convention, and I think it's just, uh, it's high time we take action. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I would comment, Senator Shaheen, that it's understandable why Mr. Kim works for a diplomatic agency of the federal government. <laughs> he did that very because well. Because the answer to his question is it's our fault, <laughs> number one, that it's still so late in coming up. I would compliment Chairman Corker and Senator Cardin on the fact that we are having this hearing, which I think sends a clear signal we're ready to take action. But I appreciate your diplomacy very much in your answering the question. Senator Johnson. No questions. No question. Senator Murphy. See, you did so good, nobody's even got a question. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Pardon me one second. Thank you very much for your testimony. We're going to move to our second panel. Members will leave the record open to, until the end of business on Monday for questions or additional comments, and I would ask the witnesses from the first panel to be sure and reply quickly if you do receive any additional questions from the committee. It's now my privilege to recognize our second panel. We have two witnesses. The first is Mr. John Schonecker, Director of Intellectual Property at the, Atlanta, at the American Seed Trade Association. Our second witness is Mr. Ed, Ed, Edwin Smith, partner at law offices of Morgan, Lewis, and Brockius. We recognize Mr. Shawnecker for his comments up to five minutes. You're recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. Just um, point out that I work for HM Close, a vegetable seed company out of Davis, California. But I want to thank you for the opportunity to testify today in support of the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture, which I'll call the treaty. I'm here on behalf of the members of the American Seed Trade Association. Founded in 1883, the ASTA represents over 700 companies engaged in plant breeding, production, and distribution of many seed types, including grains, oil seed, rice, cotton, vegetables, flowers, forages, conservation, cover crops, and grasses, what we in the vegetable seed business like to call everything from asparagus to zucchini. <laughs> uh, ASTA members are research-intensive companies in the business of discovery, development, and marketing of seed varieties with enhanced production and end-use qualities. As you know, our global food system is highly interdependent. For example, 70% of the food we eat and grow in the U.S. comes from crops that are not native to the U.S. As such, not all plant genetic resources needed to improve these crops are found in the U.S. The treaty is an agreement that aims to address this, enhance global food security by providing access to and exchange of the plant materials required to improve seed varieties. A notable example of, of the impact of plant breeding, which our previous uh, speaker talked about, uh, is the Green Revolution. And it demonstrates that you need all these sources of plant genetics to be successful. It was credited with feeding millions and saving countless lives. The wheat of Dr. Norman Borlaug was developed based on varieties from the United States, Japan, and Mexico, which in turn thrived in India and Pakistan. 
In the days of Dr. Borlaug, all plant breeders enjoyed much freer access to global plant genetic resources. However, certain countries began restricting access to their germplasm, and the treaty was drafted to stabilize this situation with the U.S. playing a key role in its development. The intent was to establish rules and standards to facilitate access and provide benefit sharing for the global seed resources needed for agriculture. Recently, the implementation of the Nagoya Protocol under the Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD, is further threatening the global exchange of germplasm. With ratification of the treaty, the U.S. would be able to resume its leadership position, enhance the treaty's functioning, and greatly diminish the uncertainty created by Nagoya and the CBD. Our national plant germplasm system is one of the best in the world. It stores, maintains, and distributes worldwide over half a million accessions. But almost two million more are held in seed banks outside the U.S. Access to this crop diversity is equally important to all sectors of agriculture, including organic, conventional, public, and private. Lack of access means lost opportunities to improve yield, enhance nutrition, better adapt crops to changing weather, and to address the threats posed by evolving pests and diseases. As we know, U.S. farmers are global leaders in productivity. Secure access to global plant material will enable public and private breeders working with organic, biotech, and conventional varieties to benefit from the treaty and to supply the best seeds to the growers so they can produce more of the best food tomorrow and well into the future. As noted, we came close to ratification in 2010 when this committee submitted the treaty and recommended ratification. Today, support for the ratification remains broad and committed. More than 80 companies and organizations representing plant breeders, academics, and seed users have expressed support to the committee for ratification. These groups include the American Farm Bureau Federation, American Society of Plant Breeders, Association of Public and Land Grant Universities, National Corn Growers Association, National Cotton Council, and the National Farmers Union, to name a few. The treaty provides a simple and non-controversial solution for a pressing problem. As a specialized system to exchange plant materials, the treaty puts all member countries on a level playing field and provides all plant breeders with clear terms and conditions of use. No new U.S. laws are required to, be, to implement the treaty, and no new appropriations are needed. In fact, most of the obligations of the treaty are currently being met by the U.S. system. With this, and on behalf of the American seed trade and farmers and researchers who support the treaty, I urge the committee to recommend ratification and support passage in the Senate. This access is critical and will greatly assist the U.S. seed industry in developing new varieties to benefit the U.S. farmer and consumer and enhance global <coughs> food security. Thanks for this opportunity to comment, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Mr. Smith? Uh, Chairman Isaacson and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify, you, to testify before you today on the Higgs Securities Convention. I'm a partner in the law firm of Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, where I regularly represent clients in cross-border transactions and insolvencies, including transactions that would be covered by the convention. I'm also a uniform law commissioner, and I've participated in the drafting of revisions to the Uniform Commercial Code. I appreciate the opportunity to appear before you today to express my support for the convention, 
The convention would solve a vexing problem for market participants in cross-border security transactions. That problem is determining which country's <laughs> law applies to security interests and property rights in intermediated securities. The problem arises from the fact that the owner of the securities, the holder of a security interest in the securities, the issuer of the securities, the location of the securities, may all be in different countries. Currently, each country has its own choice of law rules to govern these transactions, and the lack of uniformity creates real uncertainty and risk for market participants in the financial system. To solve this problem, the convention would establish clear choice of law rules that are based largely on the choice of law rules of the Uniform Commercial Code that's in effect throughout the United States. By ratifying the convention, the United States would take an important step that would not only facilitate international commerce, by preventing disputes over property rights and securities, uh, but it would also help mitigate potential systemic risk created by the lack of clarity over the governing law for cross-border security transactions. To demonstrate the importance of the convention, let me give you an example drawn from a real situation on which I had to advise a client. A customer of a U.S. bank custodian owns securities of a Japanese issuer. The U.S. bank custodian held those securities for the customer. The customer wanted to pledge those securities, grant a security interest in those securities, to secure a loan from the bank. The pledge would work very well under U.S. law. The custodian's interest in the securities would be protected from creditors of the customer that tried to use U.S. courts to reach the securities. In this case, there would be very little additional cost to the customer. The problem is that these were securities issued by a Japanese issuer. Could a creditor of the customer ignore the effective pledge under U.S. law and try to reach those securities in Japan? The answer, it turned out, based on advice from Japanese counsel, was yes. Now, how can that be? It's because we learned that a court in Japan would apply traditional conflict of law rules. Their rule would look to the location of the asset to determine which country's law governs the, whether the pledge is a good one. And since the securities were issued by Japanese issuers, they were viewed to be located in Japan. Without that lender taking steps to get a good pledge under Japanese law, the securities can be reached by a creditor of the customer who has a passport to go to Japan and can bring a lawsuit there. Moreover, if the customer became a debtor under the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, there wouldn't even need to be an actual creditor who goes to Japan for the pledge to be vulnerable. The customer's bankruptcy trustee would likely would have the rights of any creditor who could go to Japan to attach the securities, even if the creditor didn't actually do so. Well, would the pledge then be protected if the lender went through the steps of protecting the pledge under both U.S. and Japanese law? Not necessarily. If the securities were evidenced by stock certificates, a court in Japan or another country might view the applicable law to be the country where the certificates were located. <coughs> And if the securities were held through a clearing corporation, uh, it might view the applicable law to be where the clearing corporation <coughs> operates. Under current law, neither the bank nor the custodian could be sure where a lawsuit could be brought or, <coughs> or what country's law might apply. The uncertainty creates risk, and risk reduces the availability and increases the cost of credit for the customer. The situation would be even worse if there were multiple pledges of securities of different issuers in different countries being pledged because then you're multiplying the, the governing laws that could possibly apply. 
The convention would solve this troublesome problem. It would create a simple conflict of law rule that points to the law of the country whose law governs the custody agreement between the bank custodian and the customer, so long as the bank custodian has an office in that country that generally deals with securities. That law would be readily apparent from the agreement. The convention also mitigates systemic risk by facilitating the resolution of financial institutions in case of financial distress or market failure by making the receiver or trustee's law job easier in determining which governing law applies. Uh, and then we've also talked about the fact that <coughs> this convention is totally consistent with US law in terms of choice of law rules. Uh, so in conclusion, the convention creates significant benefits with little practical downside. And for that reason, market participants with no opposition of which I'm aware, uh, urge its ratification. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to answer any questions that any of you may have. Well, thank you for your testimony. I have really only two questions to ask. One is, on all treaties, there is usually some question about U.S. ceding sovereignty. Have you heard of any objection in either case on these two treaties to the sovereignty question in the United States? Not I, Mr. Chairman. No, sir. No, no, Mr. Chairman. That's, that's the right answer, and that's a good answer. Thank you very much. The second question is, I'm a Swedish, and I am Swedish, so I can use that as an example. This is hypothetical. I'm a Swede who owns stock in a U.S.-based company, corporation, and I take a legal action against that company. What will, what, if we're a member of this treaty, that guarantees that the legal action would be governed under the laws of who? Sweden or the United States? The convention doesn't deal with that issue, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it doesn't deal with uh, actions against the issuers of the securities. It just deals with who has property rights in the securities. So all of the normal rules dealing with rights of action against an issuer of securities or security law disclosures are not impacted at all by this convention. So in that same example, if I had an issue, if I, had a, if I was the corporation, I had a question with the owner of the stocks, the U.S. law would govern any action I took against the owner. Is that correct? It, it would govern any action dealing with whatever property rights the investor had in the securities. Which is why this is so important to domestic country, companies in the United States of America. It is. It is, Mr. Chairman, and that's why it's important for mutual funds, for 401ks, for lots of investors who want certainty what law governs their property rights. Mr. Schonecker, is I've been told many times and heard in many hearings that we have a, about a 90-day supply of food available in the world at any one given point in time. It's the most important commodity we've got for nutrition and security and safety. This will help enhance the security, food security of the United States and the rest of the world. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely, uh, without a doubt. Uh, really, crop varieties and the productivity of agriculture is fundamental to having reasonable access under clear terms to these resources so that we can build new varieties to solve problems and increase productivity for farmers in the U.S. and around the world. We appreciate both of your willingness to be here to testify, and I hope you'll not take all the senators leaving as any affront to your testimony. In fact, it's an acknowledgment that we needed to have done what we're doing now a long time ago, and I'll do everything I can to expedite the hearing and the passage of this legislation from the subcommittee to the full committee. We'll keep the record open for five days until the end of business day on Monday if anybody has additional questions, and I would ask both of you to try and respond as quickly as possible if you get any additional questions from the committee. Unless there's any other comment, that we'll stand adjourned. And I thank everybody for their testimony. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Chairman. Committee.